hunting pythons in the Florida Everglades to salmon fishing in the Pacific Northwest. Aaron, where can you get that in 60 minutes? Right here on the NWF Outdoors podcast, naturally. <laughs> Good stuff. Bill, Bill went down south, and, and then we talked to a couple guys from the Pacific Northwest, so we spanned the whole country. That's right. That's right. We covered it coast to coast and sea to shining sea. And sorry, folks, you're not going to be able to get to hear too much about pythons on this episode, <laughs> um, but maybe Bill can regale us with a little bit more of those stories later. But we talked to Brian Brooks, the director, executive director of the Idaho Wildlife Federation, and Aaron Lieberman, the executive director of the Idaho Guides and Outfitters Association. We talked salmon again and dam removal and the whole big hairy issue of of dam removal and restoring salmon to the Pacific Northwest, the Columbia River Basin System, and more specifically, the Snake River System. There's another key decision point. Senator Murray and Governor Isley in Washington are open up process here this month uh, to, to look at similar things that Representative Mike Simpson is looking at. How are we going to replace the, the benefits and the, you know, the, the services that the dams provide so that we can hopefully pull them down and, and get salmon swimming back to their natal birthplace there. Needs to happen, that's for sure. Catching a salmon is just kind of one of those iconic American sporting desire. You know, everybody kind of goes, I want to go catch a big wild salmon. That's something that uh, I don't know a sportsman or sportswoman who, who wouldn't desire to do that. I don't know about you, Bill. No, not for a minute. And, and there's only so many places around that you can do it. Yeah, and it's it's an iconic landscape. It's an iconic critter. And, you know, it's due time. These dams have been reducing our, our returns on these salmon for quite some time, whether it's climate or drought or all kinds of issues kind of continue to just exacerbate the situation and make it worse so we got to do something about it absolutely and uh like you said special place and, and these are all special places and, and we've got to get behind fixing it all right folks check out this episode bringing down the four dams on the snake river with brian brooks and aaron lieberman since 1936 the national wildlife federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. What's up, everybody? Aaron Kendall here and the NWF Outdoors podcast with my trusty partner, Bill Cooksey. What's happening, Big Bill? Hey, Aaron, glad to be on with you again today from the beautiful Tennessee River Valley. Yeah, and you've got some time in uh, the Everglades recently. Maybe you can talk about that when we hit the the what we've been doing outside portion. But uh, let's talk a little bit. Today, we're going we're gonna to revisit the salmon, steelhead, dams, Pacific Northwest situation because this one is not gone since last time we talked about it. The dams exist. The salmon <laughs> problem exists. And we need to keep talking about it. And we need the country to get engaged and understand this. And so we've got two good guests today. We have Aaron Lieberman. How's it going, Aaron? Going pretty well. Glad to be here. Good. And uh, we have Brian Brooks. And let me tell you about the two of them. 
Uh, Aaron is executive director of the Idaho Outfitters and Guides Association. That's a statewide business and trade association, really working on the enhancement of outdoor experiences and conservation in Idaho. So we're happy to have Aaron. And then Brian Brooks is an old buddy of mine. Uh, we've been working together in Idaho for, I don't know, Brian, uh, a while now, six, seven, eight years. I can't remember yeah. exactly, but uh, Brian is the executive director of Idaho Wildlife Federation. And he grew up hunting and fishing across Idaho, all over the place. His whole family is a bunch of hunters and anglers. And uh, IWF, the organization he's leading right now, is is really been working on this Snake River salmon steelhead issue for a long time. You know, back since the 90s, really working on restoration uh, of the Snake River and, and bringing salmon back to their aboriginal headwaters we'll call it right there the place where they're indigenous they've been forever and um they don't often get to enough these days so thanks for joining us fellas and uh what we usually do here is is start with what we've been doing outside lately it's called the nwf outdoors podcast so we got to talk about some outdoor stuff let's start with you brian where you been what you been up to uh, well, I've been turkey hunting and I can't tell you exactly where uh, that is uh, because we had a banner year this year. I just went out with my two brothers and uh, it was a real gobbler fest. We uh, you can have where we go. You can have two tags and we got five turkeys in about four hours and then rain came in and we went out the next morning to fill that last tag and we got that first thing in the morning and a four five day trip turned into a day and a half trip and we were out <laughs> we should have just stayed out there and found something else to do but but we, good job know, anyway <laughs> we we brought our bass fishing gear and uh tried our hand at that and um failed and decided we'd leave with what pride we had intact <laughs> Hear this, Bill? Bass and turkeys in Idaho. I mean, doesn't that sound like Tennessee? <laughs> Man, I'm thinking I need to go west because a gobbler fest. I mean, I've I've killed a couple of turkeys, but I haven't had a gobbler fest in a couple of years. <laughs> we we have this really uh, great subspecies. Um, it's uh, we they're all of course transplanted here, you know, decades ago. But um, Miriam's and Easterns have blended together and they have some pretty cool coloration on the tail, kind of barred caramel and mocha colored um, tail feathers. And they're, you know, they're not as pressured as they are in the East. You don't have to be as regimented as a hunter with your calling and your um, blind. In fact, we don't even use blinds. It's, it's, it's pretty active. It's, it's more similar to, um, to Western deer and elk hunting. You're, you're walking around, you'll call. If you don't hear anything, you're going up and over the next ridge. Um, but because we don't see the pressure that you do in the East, there's turkeys everywhere and they're real interested in talking. So, um, it's, it's a, it's a lot of, uh, action. It's fun. Let, let me know next year. I'm on my way. Yeah, <laughs> please come out. Love to take you out. That's what I was going to say about May 1st, Brian, I'll, I'll see you, uh, <laughs> something around there. <laughs> uh, how about you, Aaron? Where, what you, what have you been up to? Any, any shenanigans like Brian? Yeah, I didn't get out for any uh, turkey hunting, but uh, I've been been trying to get out boating some. So the water has been or it's been snowing, raining here in Idaho, thankfully, and snowpacks coming up. So uh, not too long ago, got out on the Owyhee, a desert river out in the south, uh, well southwest end of yeah. Idaho, eastern Oregon, and 
didn't really get a chance to do some fishing out there as I intended because the water came up and wasn't really good for fishing, but been trying to get out in the water some. Well, that sounds good too. Uh, what about you, Bill? I know, I know a little bit. Give us, give us a little Everglades rundown, what you were up to there. Man, you know, uh, I've spent the last six days. I got home late last night with our friend Jake Latondras down in the Everglades. And in six days, we put over a thousand miles on the car, um, stayed in five different hotels and literally it seemed like covered every back road south of Okeechobee all the way down to the Keys. I mean, we talked to famous fishermen like Tom Rowland, uh, about Everglades restoration and, you know, saw cowboys in the Everglades, talked to them, interviewed them, um, even, even got out with a Python hunter, uh, near big Cypress on the West side of uh, Florida. So man, what a whirlwind trip. It was just incredible, um, getting down there and getting on the ground and really seeing it. Bill, what does an Everglade cowboy look like? <laughs> they, they look like a cowboy anywhere. Matter of fact, this one of them was on his way to New Mexico when he finishes up down there over the next few weeks. So a lot okay. of them move around. But, yeah. The picture I saw kind of looked like Kenny Chesney. <laughs> These two were nuts, man. They really were. It was awesome. What about you, Aaron? What you been doing? <laughs> well, uh, not not anything that cool, and 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 Brian and Aaron too, and and just maybe a harken back. We had Jake Latondres, the the cinematographer, on the podcast. Was that last time? Maybe it was just last time. It was recently, uh, and uh, he he's he's got such a cool story. Tennessee born guy, but lives out here in Colorado. Got his start like <laughs> really interesting story. Does Bassmaster all over the world filming hunts and fishing stuff. Really cool guy. So check that one out. But my outdoor adventures. Last week, uh, a friend came down who's been working with us on doing some climate films. Actually, we're talking about how the sporting community is experiencing climate issues, and uh, we did a little father son cast and blast we did not blast did a lot of cast um, we tried to find turkeys but we had huge winds like 50 mile an hour sustained winds we couldn't get anything to gobble but the day before it was nice and calm and we had a caddis blizzard and caught 20 30 trout and got tons of it on film and all that stuff so that was the good stuff and then uh got my kid up skiing believe it or not on on friday he turned 17 this last week and wanted to go skiing. So mm. we went up and got sunburnt at 12,000 feet and uh, got a little skiing in, but <clears throat> snow's almost gone. Anyway, that was a long intro to all of this, but, but good stuff. Let's, let's jump into why we're here. And first we all love salmon for different reasons. I think most people who care at all about the outdoors love salmon. I mean, I don't know how you couldn't. They're one of the most unique critters on the planet. Uh, and we wanted to just start this thing out with maybe a couple cool little salmon stories. And for guys like you who've grown up in Idaho and Pacific Northwest, you get to interface and interact with salmon a lot more than most. So we thought we'd start this out with a couple little stories of, of salmon adventures. Who wants to get started? I'll, I'll take a crack at it here. I, uh, I, uh, this is Brian for everyone listening in. I, I grew up in Idaho and, um, we've always had, you know, compared to historic runs, 
um, we've had, you know, smaller runs, but there have been spikes certain years that provided fishing opportunity and, and not near what it could be, but, uh, Memorable nonetheless is anybody who's ever had um, a Chinook salmon on the end of their uh, rod can attest to. But, you know, we're, we're the headwaters here and these big fish come all the way up from the ocean 900 miles. And, and one summer when I was uh, uh, maybe 100 pounds lighter and 20 years younger <laughs> and, or more, uh, I used to go up there with my, my brothers and we'd fish. And the first... Um, uh, wild fish I have ever caught actually pulled me into the South Fork of the Salmon River. Um, rarely is there a season or a year where the fishery is good enough to where you can fish all the way up by the time the fish get to the South Fork. But the South Fork is really great, wild river, really small, white water. And um, it's just a really cool setting to catch these massive ocean fish. And, uh, yeah, man, pulled me right off my feet, right into the water <laughs> and a bunch of other anglers, uh, were watching and laughing and just cracking up, but that's, that's a memory I'll never forget. And, um, no pun intended. I mean, it's since that moment, I, I was hooked and the, uh, wild <laughs> fish specifically have always been, um, had a special place in, in my heart. Yeah, that's a good one. That gets getting the kids started. That's, that's the answer. And I'll, I'll add one, Brian, because you've told me about, yeah, you know, we'll come up there and we'll do some salmon fishing. We'll find some salmon. You brought me up there. We went fishing together. You know, we went out, no salmon in sight. I think it was like a week later, last time I come to visit you, you sent me a picture with like a 40 inch salmon. <laughs> like, yeah, when you come up, Aaron, something seems to happen where the fish stop biting, and I don't know if, what's going on. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. I all these tall tales. I'm I have yet to see it with my own eyes, but maybe one of these days. <laughs> anyway, uh, Aaron, how, how about you? You got a you got a cool salmon story of your times with, around the around the fish. Yeah, you know, I got some. Uh, the one that the one that I'll give you is the one. I, I'm a fishing guide as well, so I still. I run the association to get to still get to guide. I've been doing that for a long time. And this is the one that I always share with, with my clients. Um, Cause it's, you know, equal measure self-deprecating makes them feel good about themselves and also true, which is useful. That's uh, just telling them about, I went out an unnamed, uh, well, it has a name, I'm not going to name it Creek and uh, <laughs> well, small little river there and was going to, was going to fish out and decided to get out into this Island to fish from there. And, Got out there, fished for a while, didn't catch anything. Like, I was talking big game before I went out. Didn't catch anything. And, like, finally hooked something. Uh, finally hooked something. Like, going for it. Drop it. Decide I'm over it. I'm going back home. It's been all day. So, it's, like, it's pretty deep. I have to kind of, like, halfway swim, halfway walk. So, I take off all my clothes. Still really cold outside. Have my gear and my clothes above my head. And I'm trying to make my way back over to the truck slip and fall and drop stuff and i have to make a split second decision of what i'm going to grab of all the things that i just dropped and instead of the clothes i'd grab the rod and so didn't catch any fish but went home uh went home naked in the truck so i figured that's what i tell them as like an indication of how good i am at fishing it's like guys you got the you got the right guide here okay I'll tell you a story that's it the going home that a of this conversation uh... though <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely well let's uh let's <laughs> we've been doing a long interlude here uh to, to get us to get us started a long introduction rather but 
I think one of the big questions on folks' mind is, is we talked a little bit before this is like, hey, we've had a handful of podcasts about salmon and dams and river issues and ocean issues. And, you know, what are we doing here now? And after that long interlude, or sorry, that long introduction, we might be asking ourselves that again, because we haven't gotten to the point yet. But we do want to talk about salmon. And there's kind of some new stuff happening there. It's a, it's a time for an update. But Brian, I, I hope you'll start this one. Why are we here? How bad is it? You know, what are we looking at at this point? Well, this year, because of a roll of the dice, and that really is what it is, and the, the odds are pretty similar as well, we actually have some good ocean conditions paired with some good snowpack. And so we are approaching the average, 10-year uh, average of our runs, um, which is um, – Good in its own way, but we also have to remember that the 10-year average is <clears throat> a diminishing, diminishing returns. We've had some of the worst runs on record, on par with the runs in the 90s that resulted in the fish being listed in the first place. Um, so the last you know five years have been absolutely abysmal. They've lowered that 10-year average, and so now we're getting up to the average. Um, so it's 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 a step in a good direction, but um, as we have seen over the last. 50 years, these are typically uh, one off. And unfortunately, if you don't sustain those kinds of averages for at least three years in a row, a generation of fish, you don't, it doesn't translate into population recovery. So we're seeing likely, and we, and again, I, and I can speak to this because we've seen this on the, the graph of fish, total fish returns over the years, um, it will likely translate into a spike but it will go right back down. And so, um, uh, you know, that's, that's where we're at. I, I want to be hopeful. There is some good news for this year, but in the context of history, it's um, we've seen it before. And um, unfortunately it's, it's a, a fraction of, of what it could be. So more problems for, <clears throat> for the fish really. I mean, like you said, I think that's, that's an important part for people to understand is with all anadromous fish returns. It's cyclical. There's a lot of variables that determine whether or not these fish return. You know, it has to do with how many spawned that year, how the ocean conditions, river conditions, a lot of different things. Um, you know, and, and one of the big pushes for this thing is these dams, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what we want to talk about in a lot of ways because there's been a new push over the last, I don't know, a couple years or so the dam to get the dams down. Um, there's been a few different, you know, political processes that have prescribed solutions or, or, or different prescriptions for, for addressing, you know, the power that comes from the dams, how to breach them, how to bring them down, all these things. And I think it's worth helping our listeners kind of lay that scenario back out and what these dams do, mm -hmm. where they're at, you know, how, how they, how they constrict, uh, fish movement, all of those things. And, um, can you just, you know, give us, give us that overview, refresh us with that. Yeah. So uh, as you said, there's, there's multiple, um, factors that are, are causing mortality to our fish, uh, runs and it's, that makes it complex. There are things that we can control and things that we cannot 
control. And uh, we really, obviously, uh, the, when, when you're trying to fix uh, an issue, what what can you control and what can you tweak to, to make it so the things we cannot control have as a little impact as possible. And the, the human-caused impacts to uh, fish mortality are, are the things that we can, you know, turn some knobs and buttons on that really um, – uh, can make an impact um, for these fish in a positive way or a negative way. And right now, all the things that we're doing are obviously very negative. And, um, and I think so uh, let me let me start with this. Uh, the, when, when fish are born in Idaho waters, their natal streams, um, and they, they grow to smolts, um, they go downstream uh, um, with the spring freshet. Typically, they used to traditionally with their tails downstream, their head upstream, they would um, be flushed to the ocean now and in a matter of days. Now that journey can take um, at most, I think we've clocked it at 40 days. That's a very long time for a fish that needs to get to the estuary to feed and put pack on pounds. And so um, that is one of the biggest killers of fish is it's called water transport time. The more time that they languish when they're supposed to be in the ocean, um, not feeding, um, that that really hinders their ability to survive throughout their actual life. So uh, with the dams in place, their water transport time is significantly increased. They meet these uh, eight lake-like reservoirs um, and then uh, and the Bonneville Power Administration who funds all of the fish sort of monitoring and science through ratepayer charging um, is uh, we have these kind of uh, we, we every fish that comes down we trap them in a screw trap we put a pit tag in their nose and there are electronic arrays in every single stream that hosts anadromous fish so it pings whenever a fish goes through one of those things so we can actually tell where the fish are in the system and where they're dying. Because of that, BPA uh, lets us know that about 50% of our Idaho smolten adult salmon and steelhead die, um, caused by uh, variables um, from the, the hydropower system. That's water transport time, that's powerhouse interactions, that is warm water predators that thrive in these lake-like uh, reservoirs like introduced bass, walleye, um, we also have uh, native fish, pike minnow that are thriving in these reservoirs, but we also have avian birds like pelicans that never used to be up in that neck of the woods in Idaho or eastern Washington that are thriving in these sort of lake-like conditions. Um, and then uh, they go to the ocean and there's, well, right when they leave the bottom dam, there's this estimated what we call delayed mortality, just the stress caused by going through the hydro system that's causing uh, a, a kind of, it's it's somewhat unknown. We know it's happening, but we un don't know exactly how many fish are having this delayed mortality. Then we have the ocean conditions where they pack on 98% of their biomass in poor years where the currents, the temperatures impact the the sort of uh, trophic cascade, the ability of for their food source essentially. Um, in poor years, that kills, you know, 90% 7%, 95% of those fish. In good years, it kills about 90%. So the ocean has always been the largest contributor to mortality of fish. That's where they live for the majority of their lives. Then something happens um, in their brain. They come back to their uh, the mouth of the Columbia River. And then they face a gauntlet of some seals and sea lions, which are estimated to kill about 16 to 30% of adults returning 
But if you include all the number of smolts, it's about 0.03%. It's actually a very, very small amount when you look at all of the fish that are coming down. Uh, and then they die again. About 16% of returning wow. adults die through the dams. And then the ones that make it back to Idaho are the spawners. So they have a very uh, a lot of <laughs> barriers, both uh, literal and um, metaphorical and, and places to die. And so in that life cycle, we really need to look at, well, what can we do that will guarantee their survival? Well, we can't necessarily guarantee that we can we can't manipulate the oceans um, or change the weather. But what we can do is we can change how we manage and operate the the river system in a way that can benefit fish. And that is why the dams are under a microscope, because we know that they're responsible for killing fish, mostly on their oceanward migration as smolts, as baby fish. And um, when the guys operating the dams say that uh, the dams are responsible for 50% smolt mortality, another 16% on their way back up, um, it's important to listen because that is um, one out of every two fish or more that are dying just because of the way we manage the river. And if we can reverse that, we will get our fish back. Brian, I, I heard something there that somehow I've missed in, in all the years. I've read some about salmon and all, but you know, being back here, it's not necessarily foremost in my thoughts. So I think other people probably heard it maybe hopefully and uh, are interested too, because I understand going up river to spawn, you know, and that's a big deal. You got to, you have ladders or whatever mm -hmm. in different places to help fish get up river. Never thought about fish getting back to the estuary. You know, I think they get up river. Well, surely they can get down mm -hmm. kind of like a ladder. You're coming down, but, uh, can, can you say something more about that? I mean, is it just as difficult to return as it is to get up there? It's, and of it's, course you're talking about young too. So it's actually easier for the adults to return because they're just so much more resilient and they're not as delicate. And they're when, when fish enter the river system, I don't know exactly where it is, but when they switch from salt to fresh, they stop eating and they don't eat on their entire journey back to Idaho. Uh, and they're, so they're losing weight, everything that they packed on. So they're, they're just like, they're just tanks by the time they're coming back and they're pretty resilient. They're tough fish, but when they're small, it's obviously they're really vulnerable. And when they're coming back to Idaho as adults, there's ladders, they can go up that kind of represent a cascade, but because of the, uh, elevation that those fish have to climb, that does cause some stress and some mortality. Um, but the large, large mortality is when fish are just the size of your finger and they're going downstream. And from Idaho, that's a 900 mile perilous journey. And it is made far more uh, dangerous just by um, the, the system of dams and lakes that we have. One of the other things, Brian, that someone, I think it was Greg Fitz from Wild Steelhead Coalition told us about that didn't occur to me, but man, hits home. The thermal changes when you have slack water. Mm -hmm. right? Like running, flowing cold water coming off the mountains when it backs up and sits there and bakes in the sun. And you can imagine in both directions mm -hmm. that could cause some trouble too, right? You're, you're going from, I don't know, 50, 60 degree water to, I don't know, 80. I, I don't know what the temperatures are, but and then if you see that in your mind, you, know, you see that in your mind, like, you know, flowing oxygenated water, stagnant, hot water, back to flowing oxygenated water, back to stagnant warm water. That sounds perilous in, in its own right. 
Yeah, there are a few reasons why. And I think when people are listening to this, like well, a lot of questions we get are like, well, why why the Snake River dams? There's there's eight dams on the there's four dams on the Columbia and four on the Snake. Why are you guys just looking at these dams? Uh, well, and you just hit on temperature. There's some ecological reasons. That's a pretty uh, that's a just because of the weather and where it's at. That's it's a hot, hot place. And the reservoirs behind those dams are actually hotter than the dams lower in the system. If you think about the rivers that feed into the lower tributary in the Columbia, whether it's <clears throat> the Yakima, the, um, I mean, they, they come from a temperate rainforest uh, where and, and it's cooler and it's shaded a bit better. But when you get back up further upstream in Idaho, it seems counterintuitive. Um, but the further you go upstream um, on the snake, it's just, it can be sweltering. And those, those hot, flat, lakes just um i mean we've had in 2015 um the water cooked uh, alive the the sockeye that were returning and in other hot summers we now try to avoid that by shipping them around those lakes and of course that costs money as well and so there's some ecological reasons why we know that the dams are 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 killing our fish as opposed to other dams you know if you look at rivers like the yakima the deschutes uh, the John Day, all those, all those salmon steel had to go back to those rivers that only have one to four dams to go over, um, both on their smolt and adult journeys. Um, they're enjoying enjoying smolt to adult return ratios um, that are sustainable even during depressed years. As long as you get between two to six percent adults returning, um, you're going to be sustainable. Only Snake River stocks, only Idaho's fish that have to go over eight dams are less than two, and in m- most cases less than one percent that means that one fish is replacing every two adults um if you're below one percent and so um it's just eight dams is too many and if you you know do the math that's eight dams on the way out eight dams on the way back up so there's some ecological reasons why we know that if the dams were taken out in the snake river that they'd come back but um, really i think why there's national attention coming to this is because of some other more economic related uh reasons um that are associated with the four lower snake river dams. Well, we'll get into that, but as another variable, let's think about Aaron's point of view, Aaron, professional rafting, fishing guide. You know, this is obviously playing a role in your livelihood. Why don't you give us the, the overview of, of what you're seeing and experiencing? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's pretty similar to what we've, what you might expect and what folks have already touched on. So Brian let off with some current numbers, what we're looking at for uh, what our returns are looking like right now. And I would just first add some context to that one. It is kind of hard being a rafting guide, fishing guide and representing Idaho outfitters and guides um, who rely inordinately on these species to not, you know, not be excited or not promote anything, any shift in the baseline any marginally higher number than the year before in returns. But again, and Brian hit on this, but just to put it in context, like we are looking at a 10 uh, coming up on the 10 year average, but that 10 year average is a fraction of what it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, since these dams have been installed, that has been dropping at an exponential rate, uh, decade over decade. And so we're getting really excited. You know, it is, it's good for these, it's good for these communities, all these river set, all these uh, riverine communities um, up and out of the snake river basin, the clear water, the salmon uh, and all of its forks. Uh, it's great that there are 
hopefully some better returns coming back there. Um, but they could be so much better than they are. And we don't really know, we don't really know what that could look like. So what, you know, what a restored snake river and what restored, uh, salmon returns could look like in economic terms, but we expect it to be pretty great. Um, I think in a, so that's just on recent returns. I think, uh, I guess to the question and I'll try to try to keep it somewhat succinct, but so the question of how this looks for outfitters and guides, um, the, the, uh, the folks I represent. So the Idaho outfitters and guides association itself has had a strong stance on uh, the lower snake river dams for quite a long time, going back to 1997, 1998, uh, the organization got together and across the political spectrum. So we represent the most conservative people you can imagine the most liberal people you can imagine. There's cowboys like real cowboys and real hippies hanging out at bars together when, when our people get together at meetings. Um, but by the late nineties, uh, it became pretty clear that, um, one, the science was already unequivocal at that time that the single most, uh, the single most viable means toward restoring Idaho's, uh, salmon and steel populations is removal of lower forest and acre dams. We've known that for a really long time. Um, but also that it was devastating to the communities and to the industry, uh, communities they came out of in the industry, um, that I represent. So, the industry itself has stood behind this and uh, or been behind the removal of the lower forest and acre dams for a long time. Um, and a lot of that just comes out of pain. So uh, in places like uh, places like Riggins, for example, in 2001, that's one of those blip years that uh, Brian referenced earlier. In places like Riggins, Idaho, um, you, have a huge no- you have a large number of salmon and steelhead uh, outfitters and guides, and a single limited spring Chinook season in Riggins brought in the equivalent of about 25% of that town's overall gross receipts for a year. Um, more recently, what was it, 2018, Brian, 2019? I guess 2019 probably, when they shut down the uh, Clearwater steelhead season, the uh, Idaho Department of Labor estimated they were losing about $8 million. Uh, the, the, the loss uh, was about $8 million per month over four month season to the, in the, in the Clearwater Valley. So 30, I mean, that should be easy math, but 34 ish million total over the course of the season. Um, in places where extractive industry has been replaced by recreation tourism, and in particular, these shoulder season, uh, shoulder and winter season fish runs, um, the impact has been really, really severe on uh, folks in our industry. And, you know, they're still holding on, although some are finding different different pursuits, getting out of the game, uh, which is really sad to see. Um, and that's an impact. I think another impact that we probably don't talk about as much as we should, whether in my industry or generally is, uh, or as outfitters and guides or just in general, is the cultural impact. So there's obviously, there's obviously a cultural impact um, for the tribes like we i think that's fairly front and center now at least in this conversation um and i don't mean to diminish that at all by bringing up the non-tribal cultural impact i mean brian let off with the story is a little bit more heartfelt than mine but brian left with the, let off with the story about catching his first salmon and across rural idaho there are there's a connection to these fish um there's a connection to, to these fish that goes back generations. I mean, I know an outfitter whose family is fifth generation Idahoan and there are stories passed down from grandfather to grandfather about how the fish kept them alive. Um, I put salmon and steelhead were the thing that kept them alive in one lean year. Um, so there, 
they're incredibly important to the culture, the identity of, uh, of our state period, let alone to, uh, in particular, the rural communities that largely rely on them and for outfitters and guides, um, you know, there's a spiritual component, there's an economic component to be sure, but, uh, there's also a drive to see the populations restored because we recognize as the science demonstrates that of all the things that are affecting them, um, predation, ocean conditions, et cetera, there is one single thing that we can do that, uh, that demonstrably uh, that demonstrably will uh, restore salmon and steelhead populations, and that's removing the lower forest acre per dam. So we should do the thing we can do. Uh, get at your question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to add on to for context, so people know who've never been to the lovely town of Riggins. It's like what a few hundred people, and that Chinook season yeah, almost four hundred now. For one, for one, <laughs> they're growing up uh, for one season. For one fish, what and how long is that season? A month, month and a half. Yeah, brought in thirty-four million dollars to a town of four hundred people for one and a half months. Uh, I mean, it's a serious even, and, and that was in a year that was a, a, a good year uh, while the dams have been in place, um, but the, it wasn't even near our recovery goals. I mean, so it's easy to extrapolate. Well, if we were that year, if we weren't even to our recovery goals, and we doubled it to get to our recovery goals. I mean, that you have a serious economic driver in a place um, that doesn't have many other economic inputs. And that goes for the that other study Aaron mentioned for the Clearwater River steelhead season when small towns in the winter, when there's not a whole lot of economic activity going on, when those towns are losing eight point, I think it was eight point six. I just read that study eight point six million a month. Um I mean, that affects a lot of people. They were able to measure. It was kind of cool. It was the first, I mean, it's a sad situation, but it was the first time where they were able, because we were able to actually turn off a switch, um, which was the steelhead season. We could measure the direct economic impact. Hotels went from 100% booked to 43% booked. They were able to measure the drop in gas station incomes and all the other different industries, restaurants and all that stuff. And so um, we have measurable data. We know what it is now in poor conditions and we can kind of, we can extrapolate that uh, if we get to the, the recovery goals we want. And I'll yeah, I'm really add one more life. It is. And I'm going to add one more thing, sorry, because I, I, I think when, when I talk about this that oftentimes the, on the economics in particular, uh, it, we talked about these rural towns and we should, because that's where this is happening. Um, and that's where it's most, that's where it's most clear, uh, or, you know, most awful. There's bleeding out on the kitchen floor. Um, but the other thing to consider is that, so outfitting and guiding outdoor recreation is the after agriculture, which is subsidized, uh, largely in Idaho, outdoor recreation tourism is the largest single sector of the economy and outfitting and guiding, according to the Idaho department of commerce, uh, generates about $1.2 billion per year uh, for Idaho's economy. That's one-seventh of the outdoor rec economy. So it's the single largest contributor to the outdoor rec economy. Within that, about 25% of outfitters and guides, in, uh, or 15 to 25% of outfitters and guides in Idaho are anadromous uh, fishing outfitters or guides. And so uh, I have it written down somewhere, but off the top of my head, that's like 200-something-ish million uh, in returns for the whole state, not just for those individual communities. And that's certainly a low number because that's just outfitted, right? That's not overall economics of salmon to steelhead. Um, but all to say that this isn't just about places like Riggins. That's uh, Riggins or, you know, Kamii Salmon, a town named Salmon Stanley. Chalice is not just those places. It's also all of the inputs that those places bring to the rest of the state. 
and the state to the rest of the region. I mean, like trophic, trophic cascades elsewhere, there's an economic trophic cascade that falls out from things like this. So it's it's not just a Reagan's problem. It's not just a salmon pro- or salmon Idaho problem. It's a it's a broader Idaho problem, regional problem, even just in bricks and mortar economic terms, beyond the cultural and spiritual uh, losses. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up some of that cultural, spiritual stuff, the, the indigenous communities. I mean, uh, uh, you know, people that have had salmon as part of their culture for, I mean, thousands and thousands of years. We don't know how far back and, and not just part of it, but a staple. And then looking at this this particular situation now where it's like so draining. I mean, that that part to me is is a pretty sad component of this too, right? Of Of you've had like your way of life has been this and and we're talking about kind of more contemporary, you know, mm-hmm. communities standard, you know, modern communities, but this stuff goes back to ancient times where these folks, you know, were relying on these things and many cultures built around it. And that and that's a gigantic loss too and we're we're failing to honor those treaties. We're mm-hmm. we're we're you know, it's it's removed from from these generations you know, as far as their ability to connect with all of their past. And then you get into, you know, right now, these small towns. I mean, the the problem just seems so, I mean, I love hearing you guys talk about because you still kind of point to there's a solution, mm-hmm. <laughs> which it sounds so onerous and so big. And so, man, we've really screwed this one up. And I, and I hope, you know, we can talk about that a little and, and, you guys started with it too, the four dams, right? The four mm-hmm. dams is the the most obvious thing that we can do right now. And we should get into to what that looks like. You know, outline that plan. We have we also have the the Mike Simpson plan, which includes some of that. Maybe it'd be good to kind of pick all that apart and, and start with just what removing the four dams would entail. Sure. Yeah. That's that's the exciting stuff, right? I mean we're <laughs> it's it's uh it's tough to talk about removing infrastructure. I mean, it's 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 a hot topic uh, politically. People are passionate about it. There's a lot of perceptions about what these dams provide, and I think um, that is that component of this big conversation to restore salmon is is um, I th- when we talk with rural communities about this and folks who want salmon back, and we start talking about this, it's it's the most eye-opening, I think, to a lot of folks because there's just generally not a lot of knowledge um, about the other impacts that are kind of discussions that should be taking place when it comes to salmon recovery. Hey, Brian, I've, I've got to jump in because I don't know anything about this and I'm coming from the opposite end of the country. And I mean, we're talking about taking down dams and, and I can look out this window to my left. If I opened it up, I could throw a rock and hit the Tennessee River and I'm on Kentucky Lake, which is a hydroelectric lake and a flood control reservoir in the Tennessee River Valley. So when I hear taking down dams, I think, man, you're talking flooding and no electricity and we're going back to the dark ages. And that's kind of where we would be all of a sudden right here. So, so what is the difference there for folks in my part of the world? What's the difference? Yeah, uh, that's, that's an, (laughs) that is a very important question because any changes that we make to the river system are going to impact folks in some way. We need to make sure that we are mitigating for those changes that will occur. But the good news is with, in relation to the four lower snake river dams is that they are 
run of the river dams. So they produce slack water. It's not necessarily a lake and they're not a storage capacity dam. So um, I'm trying to think, uh, if you think of like Lake Mead in down in Nevada, that thing is a, it's a really tall, tall dam. It stores water back forever. It's flat water. It stores a bunch and they, and it can, because they can store that water, a ton of it, that dam could probably produce electricity full charge, um, full bore um, for a long time. With these dams, they're running the river. They don't store a whole lot of water. And so, and they're not flood control dams. So, and that's really important to remember because a lot of that's people's first questions are like, well, aren't we going to flood the downriver communities? And the answer is uh, no, we won't flood. The, the storage water facilities or sorry, the water storage facilities are further up in the Columbia Basin there. A lot of them are in Canada. Um, that necessitates the uh, Columbia River Treaty because Canada wants some of that water. They produce the energy from it, but we want the water for other purposes. Um, some of the storage facilities are in Montana, in Idaho, and um, other places. But these specific dams are not storage capacity. So if we remove them, no communities would be flooded. The only thing we need to replace is the power production, um, which is important. Um, in, in fact, the amount of power these dams actually produce is really insignificant. It's it's about 3.9% of Bonneville Power's entire portfolio. Um, so eat, all four of those dams are only 3.9%. And that 3.9%, um, which we'll get into the his, his, <clears throat> me, history of BPA uh, to explain the context of this, that's all surplus power. Um, that's power that is not consumed within the Northwest and is actually sold off to other states, um, often at a loss now. So we're actually (laughs) paying people to take that surplus power away from us. So the power is not as important anymore. That's not, that wasn't the case about 20 years ago, but it is now. Um, and then the other, but the the real importance when it comes to power of these dams is it's called baseload power. Um, if there's a cold snap and we need to power people's heaters, or if it's really hot and we need to power a bunch of ACs and the uh, generating projects aren't producing enough power, you can basically flip on the dam switch and water will start moving through the turbines. And so it's basically the water that's backed up is like a battery. Um, that's what's more important is that function of baseload power. But we're now at a point technologically where we can actually replace the baseload power with battery storage, pump storage, and uh, and with a use of other generating projects. So that's the power side of things that we need to replace. Congressman Simpson's plan accounts for that. But there's also then the other benefit of these dams is agricultural transportation, barging. Uh, I don't know if they barge commodities through the dams uh, and locks in, in, in your neck of the woods, but... Um, about 90%. About every 10 minutes, there's a bar. <laughs> yeah. the river. So we, we yeah. kind of have the same, uh, it's the same infrastructure value here. Um, however, because of, uh, you know, the markets, it, the, the free market is, is speaking and by and large, shippers are abandoning the river system, at least in our neck of the woods. We've seen an 80% drop in barges pass through the locks of the lower forest snake river dams because there are just other ways to do it. And um, so that that's part of the economic sort of, um, these dams are losing their economic power that they used to hold. Once upon a time, they were incredibly um, valuable. That value is, has disappeared. 
And so I, I guess that that that's to, to, to round that out. That's why we're talking about this. The value of the dams has disappeared from a power standpoint. The value of the dams has disappeared from a shipping standpoint. These are federal dams. So it takes taxpayer dollars to maintain them. Um, so we're subsidizing the services they provide, even though they're losing their value and they're responsible. They're the primary uh, 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 issue killing our fish. So, um, so this sounds like a no brainer. There's a, <laughs> there's it a trifecta sh- it of issues. <laughs> It should be a no-brainer. And I mean, and, I, and if I could just jump in, I want to go back. Uh, well, first, Bill, to your question, that is a great question. And I think Brian did an awesome job of answering it because the question, I think, just for the, the average person looking at this from our region or otherwise says, okay, so you're going to remove these these green energy, quote unquote, which they're not totally, but these green energy projects, you're going to take down the dams, you're going to you know degrade our electrical grid. And, you know, we're going to say, screw, screw the farmers, whatever else. None of those things are true, right? Like they produce very minimal power. We can replace that power. Um, they provide no flood control, et cetera. So, and another thing Brian didn't mention, I think he is going to talk a little bit about, or, you know, we might hit on BPA later, but another big difference between those dams that you're, that you're looking out your window at uh, and the ones that we're talking about on lower for uh, lower force snake river dams is that it's my understanding that with the Tennessee Valley authority, which would, uh, which is administers those projects over there uh, that, there's actual oversight. There's a board that is accountable uh, for for their impacts and for their finances uh, with the Tennessee Valley Authority. That's not the case with the Bonneville Power Administration. There's basically one administrator who doesn't really have much. The only oversight is a, is congressional committee, um, and that's led to some pretty severe mismanagement and uh, you know increased borrowing limits beyond what any. You know, the most liberal Democrat should or would allow, let alone uh, let it, let alone a conservative committee. So uh, that's another big difference. And we might get back to this, but Aaron, the other thing, you know, you led into that, you led with a question um, about why uh, about it seems like, you know, you're, it's hopeful to hear that there are solutions. And uh, I think both the, the really heartening thing and also the uh, deeply frustrating thing about this particular issue is that. Uh, there is, we, we can do at least the primary thing we need to do in order to restore salmon and steelhead. And we can do so without negatively impacting people who are most dependent on the current system. So mo- the, the farmers and bargers, but farmers in particular, trying to get their grain to market that are most dependent on the current system. We can replace the infrastructure necessary for that. We just have to choose to do so. Like we can replace the power, shoot, we can replace it now. We can, we can replace the flexibility that is well within our power. I mean, you know, when, when these dams were built 50, a generation ago, several generations ago, they made a lot of sense. We were fighting the Nazis. We had to, we had to ramp up production. We had to produce smelt aluminum, do all sorts of stuff to stop fascism, et cetera. And it made a lot of sense. Lights in Chalice went on and, and Chalice Idaho went on in what, 1948? first light bulb and that was great that was huge but times have changed and we don't need them anymore good so the frustrating part is that there's still so much misunderstanding uh about what they actually provide what is actually necessary to remove them uh the really heartening exciting part is that we can do all of those things now we could we could do them right away we just have to choose to invest in them um, and that's what Congressman Simpson is proposing in his, I think we're calling it the Columbia Basin Initiative now. Um, that's what Congressman Simpson is proposing and what, you know, 
those of us who are really interested in seeing this happen are trying to line out for folks. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sports Women. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis Podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked about it before a bit on a podcast, but let's refresh folks and then kind of bring us up to the contemporary moment The because there's a couple other processes that are happening too. So maybe one of you can outline what it is exactly in the Simpson plan, what it prescribes. And then, you know, I, I think what we really want to get to is by the end, like the wish list, right? Like mm-hmm. if we could do five things, is it just the plan? What else would it be? You know, mm-hmm. let's get to this thing and, and figure out how we can look together, the sporting community and others to make this happen, nationalize it. It's a big issue. It's, it's beyond, you know, it's one of these issues we, we all get in our silos a little. We're used to working with our game and fish departments and so on. But this is one of these issues that's bigger. It's regional. It's national. It's the fate of salmon in the lower 48. You know, it, it's pretty incredible how, how much this touches on. So I'm hoping you guys can just help us walk through kind of like the things that are prescribing a solution here. And what does it look like? Yeah, there's, well, it's, um, gosh, it's, it's really hard to talk about this because there are so many things to, to, because we built the, the Bonneville power administration was created as a part of the new deal. And then we needed to increase power production, as Aaron said, because of world war two. And then people were like, well, we want fish passage because this is a really important thing to, uh, where we live. Um, uh, we started building more projects and then um, we built too many projects and then BPA defaulted and that ended up with the passage of the Northwest Power and Planning Act of 1980, which turned BPA uh, into a piggy bank as well. So because we were producing too much power, the first portion of that power would serve the residents of the Pacific Northwest. The surplus power would be sold as a, on, the, on a, a different market, come back as a rebate, but also fund salmon and steelhead projects um and then the hell's canyon dam complex was built which blocked fish passage to southern idaho and even northern nevada um but then because of uh the the hot water created in that system it required this what's called the nez Perce agreement so bpa pays eastern idaho farmers to send water downstream to cool the snake river um so i guess i'm saying all that to build a picture of this is we have slowly built this bigger and bigger and bigger bureaucratic knot where the there's government money well, it's ratepayer money but it's administered by a government entity bpa that pays i mean like you would think like oh well we're just going to take out a dam and fish will come back okay well then the Eastern Idaho farmers are going to stop getting their money because they're sending. <laughs> so I think people are like, wow, like why they, you, you open more doors and there's, there's more doors behind it. And so anyway, we've got this big bureaucratic knot that Simpson's plan 
is attempting to untangle. And because there are so many facets to this, I mean, you have to address you have to address them all. And so there are the infrastructure changes that he is proposing, and then there are some other sort of um, uh, I don't know what the administrative changes. Um, so uh, the administrative changes, for example, would be you know the Bonneville Power Administration uh, would no longer be in charge of fish recovery efforts, something that probably should have been remedied a long time ago because for the past fifty years they've failed to recover our fish. And so he changes the that uh, government agency quasi monopoly into uh, a new commission that would govern fish recovery, and that's their sole goal. It's not it selling or marketing power. Um, but we can get into that in a sec. But maybe we should just start with the infrastructure, the nuts and bolts. And um, Aaron, feel free to chime in here. But um, it's also important to know that Simpson's initiative is high level. It's not legislation. It proposes fixes and replacement uh, efforts that are just ideas and jumping off points. And a lot of it still needs to be fleshed out with the details. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump in real quick and say three things and then let you dive into some details. So the three top level things for Simpson's plan to keep in mind, he's trying to do three things or acknowledging three realities. One is that, as we've talked about, BPA has been in a financial down spiral for quite some time, which, side mm-hmm. note, is uh, especially uh, frustrating given that they're a federal federal bureaucracy with a monopoly over the movement of electrons and the marketing of them. That's number one. Number two <laughs> is that agriculture and power companies uh, are facing ongoing, seemingly ceaseless lawsuits, many of them for very good reason, um, many of them out of their control. But that that is creating that has created a pretty untenable uh, business uh, environment for them, and it's one of the major things driving BPA's uh, insolvency. And the third thing uh, to understand about Simpson's plan and what he's trying to do is the thing we let off with, which is that Idaho salmon and steelhead populations, and those across the Northwest, but in particular Idaho salmon and steelhead populations, are in in a down spiral even steeper than BPA's financial down spiral and that that down spiral is primarily associated or at least can be controlled by removal of lower four. Within that, there's the things that Brian was about to talk talk about, which are the investments and assurances that are necessary yes. to see it all through. Excellent tee up. Yeah. So um, to summarize, Aaron, stop. Yeah, we have, we want to recover fish. If the fish continue to decline like they are, uh, the ESA will be wielded, um, even appropriately, in my opinion, by a federal judge, and that federal judge will implement changes to the river system, and that would be damaging for everybody who benefits from the current river system. So to avoid that, we want to make the river system viable for our fish, and in order to make it also uh, viable economically, we need to replace the services that dams provide to humans, which is just energy and transportation. So for the uh, the energy side of things, the initiative really... Um, goes into uh, the, the dams produce about just under a thousand megawatts a year. And uh, we need to replace that system. And we need also need to replace uh, the base load, the battery capacity, as I, I had said before. And you only ever need about 12 hours max of base load power. If you think about it, you know, heaters eventually turn off when the sun comes up or air conditioners uh, eventually, um, need to turn off when the, when the, the sun goes down, stuff like that. Um, 
but uh, they estimated that about 10 billion would be made available to the Bonneville Power Administration to replace the that power production. Um, but it goes beyond what the power is produced right now. So it's about a thousand megawatts a year. I think their their goal is to replace that three times over uh, with um, firm power replacements. And firm is a kind of a reference to that battery uh, storage capacity. They've, they've proposed a number of um, potential uh, power generating sources, but it's really um, up to the agencies and a little bit further uh, invest or uh, research to figure out what would be a um, the best mixture of power sources. But it's it's wind, it's solar combined with battery storage capacity, small modular nuclear reactors as an emerging technology. Actually, some of that is being pioneered here in Idaho at our national laboratory. Those are like little six packs, tiny reactors that can actually be plugged into the existing nuclear site at Hanford, which is on the upper Columbia River stretch. Um, and, and they believe that um, that's more than enough money to replace the power um, that is produced by the dams uh, at the moment. And then uh, you would need to also invest in transportation that the dams provide currently. Most of mostly what's what's shipped through the dams now is wheat. And as I had said, it's it's declined about 80 percent since its peak in the early thousands. And um, it's not that there's a, a reduced volume of things being shipped. It's just that folks are finding better, more reliable ways to ship, whether that's by truck or rail. Take, for instance, the town of Rosalia, Washington. It's only a few hundred people. They just straight up bought their own rail terminal, built their own rail terminal and a connector line with the Washington State Department of Transportation. And now they just ship all of their wheat to the Tri-Cities where it can be put on barge and shipped through the lower Columbia River. It was just more reliable than the Snake River. So um, the free market's already leaving the river, as I had said before, but um, there are still some people that would be left behind if we didn't replace it. So uh, we would need to expand the loading capacity for rail down where they do this in Lewiston. And then we could beef up the, the the rail system as well. And there is some folks that have calculated exactly what they would need to ship the current volume of wheat uh, going down river. Aaron, is there anything you'd add to that? No, I think, I think that about covers it from the rail perspective. Um, I think one of the main, well, yeah, I was going to get into some of the, uh, some of the complications since as Brian said, like Simpson's concept, he, he intentionally left the top level, but he's hitting on all the things that we need to address. And so one of the things that's top level that folks have pointed out is like, well, we don't know like we have to do NEPA and we have to study exactly what would be required for rail infrastructure. There's plenty of money. I think like $3.6 billion. And then with that growing in a fund um, to replace that infrastructure, there are things that still have to happen, but, I think Brian, you outlined, you outlined the main ones. Um, the final mm-hmm. part, did you touch on the, on litigation? No, no, no. I, I was just talking about re- re- infrastructure replacement. Okay. Yep. Well, then I won't get ahead of you. Yeah. Infrastructure well, replacement. <laughs> I think that's about it. We can, we can wrap it up by saying that, um, I mean, there's a lot of projects that are already coming online. Um, some requests for proposals out by other utilities like Seattle city and lights, public utility districts, power co-ops, there are shovel-ready projects that are happening now 
that already far out clips the the power generation produced by those dams, but they go to other communities. And so, um, you know, when some people say well, like, well, man, that power is irreplaceable. It's like, well, there's projects that are starting being built now that are already going to far uh, eclipse uh, the, the power production of the LSRDs. And then the last note I have here, a lot of people ask us, like, what does breach even look like? Do they blow up the dams, shower concrete down everywhere? Um, the concrete stays in place. If you look at a picture of these dams, about two thirds of the dam is concrete, the powerhouse and all that. And then about one third of it is the old river channel uh, and it's dirt and it's earthen. All they need to do is take that out. And so these, um, you know, theoretically, you can actually take out the dirt and get the river flowing back through. It's a little more complicated than that, but it will flow around the concrete. And if we ever wanted to use the dams in the future, you can actually plug that back up. And again, it's a little more complicated than that, but we can plug it back up and we can use them again if we wanted to. And the Army Corps has estimated with a about a 50% contingency, just in case things get a little bit more expensive than they they plan on, it, it only costs like uh, at most one and a half billion to breach all four dams. Well, okay. So we've got bureaucracy, we've got overspending, we've got uh, an agency or, a, or an entity which has failed to in their job to deal with salmon for what fifty years? You said fifty plus mm-hmm. years. Uh, so we've got something sportsmen should be caring about, mm-hmm. or or anyone who cares about you know wild things. But obviously, sportsmen—that's who we're talking to. W- what can people do? I mean, what can be done? What's going on that people can help with? You know, if if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you got to get on your your senators and your representatives. Um, and, and this is a prescient issue because, you know, Simpson has been a champion for fish and more recently, I mean, a true, a champion. He is championing this issue. More recently, some Washington Democrats, uh, Governor Inslee and Senator uh, Murray have started a process. I wouldn't say that they're a champion for fish, but they are having, they're facilitating conversations to figure out how we can get to something similar like Simpson's plan. But people in Washington need to step on the gas and get a hold of those folks or their offices say, I really support Simpson's um, vision here. If you're located elsewhere in the country, um, I, I think it's a tough question because what what does a, a senator from Tennessee care much about uh, some some fish in a river system that's in the opposite side of the country. Um, the reason we bring up all these other issues, although this is at its center a fish issue, um, it's also a, a taxpayer issue and a ratepayer issue. You, Bill, are paying uh, or uh, in part for the the failing management of this river system, and um, there are some people that are benefiting from it, but at the expense of the many. And so if you're uh, if that if that um, gets your goat, then I also say that it's worth sending a note to your legislators, because at some point this is going to become a vote nationally. And it'd be great for people to pave the way to introduce their lawmakers to this issue, though it is out of district. But it does impact people in district because you're paying for it Um, and you're not getting anything out of it. Yeah, I mean, as sportsmen, Bill, like you should care. I mean, every all of us should care because if we can forestall the extinction of a species, period, and we can do it without harming other individuals or other species, then we should just do that because because it's a human thing to do. Because it is the right, whether we're sportsmen or not, it is the right thing to do. 
beyond treaty obligations, beyond the impacts on rural communities, beyond federal mismanagement and debt and subsidization, beyond all of those things that end up taking the four, we're also talking about the extinction of a, of a keystone species. And everyone, every American should care about that. And in terms of who to contact, I think Brian nailed it. In wa- if you're in Washington in particular, um, definitely hit up Murray and Inslee, but more than that, hit up McMorris Rogers and uh, oh, McMorris Rogers and uh, Dan, Dan Newhouse. Newhouse. There we go. Dan Newhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, we really need to move some of the eastern Washington. I mean, well, we need to move. The, I guess the better way to frame that is representative representatives in, in america only care what senators congressmen you know presidents only care about an issue when they're made to care about an issue when they hear enough about it that they you know either are negatively impacted they're just getting reelected. if they're not going to get reelected because they don't do a thing then they start doing that thing if they're not going to get reelected unless they do a thing they do the thing anyway they need to hear that that's the thing that has to be done is the point and they're not hearing that enough in certain areas where we really need to move them. And they're, more than that, actively spreading some misinformation about the real contours of the issue. And so for folks in eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, um, in particular, contact those members of that congressional delegation. And I mean, I think Brian's point about, you know, hitting up your uh, representatives in Congress in other states, definitely, definitely still works. Definitely is still a thing. The Northwest delegation is strong, but if you have representatives in particular on germane committees, then that's always a good move. Or if you have personal connections, but beyond that, um, writing to the Biden administration, writing to uh, Deb Holland, uh, contacting contacting mm-hmm. folks a bit higher up who maybe can put pressure on, I think is an effective mechanism as well. If your legislators are not fans of government waste, you should tell them to get a hold of Simpson because he's got a really good plan that can chop away at some of that. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Brian, I I think it's a good – I mean, I, I want to try to real quick, true, pull apart because from what I understand is this – of this Inslee-Murray process, it's, it's really a kind of – doing some of the similar stuff that Simpson's plan is, or like trying to look at it, right? Like they want to figure out how do we replace the benefits of the dams, which uh, it seems like Simpson has, has, has laid that out a bit too. What's the difference? And, and then we should say too, that I would say that this process that Governor Inslee and Senator Murray have started is probably the most organized process mm-hmm. It right now that's happening that they're they're actively collecting and saying we're going to consider things that folks should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I, I think to a point, you know, Simpson came out. He was the first to step out on this issue. And what happens is when you step out and you're alone, you're the only one who people are going to paint a target on. And I think when he introduced this uh, back in February 2021, people are kind of holding their breath to see what the reaction would be. And a lot of folks were pretty damn upset that 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 legislators from Washington, Oregon, who claim to be champions for environmental causes, didn't do anything. And their states are suffering just like Idaho. And finally, uh, you know, there was a lot of grass. There was an upwelling of grassroots um, anger that uh, – manifested in a lot of, of different um, sort of uh, mobilization tactics and strategies, and especially by um, 
First Nation, uh, uh, Native American tribes. And um, finally, uh, Inslee and Murray kind of came around and that sparked this uh, sort of public process. So, yeah, I mean, there there was also some partisan issues happening around that time when when Biden took office that I think that people, uh, at least in Congress, were not uh, were more dysfunctional than usual. Let's put it that way and end it there. Uh, and <laughs> and and now, though, the issue has become the central focus and um, Inslee and Murray have committed to bringing stakeholders together on their own sort of process. Simpson had over 350 or so meetings to get all the information that he could get on what we could do to help fish and replace all the services that the current river system provides. Um, This is a similar process. And so we've really worked hard with other fish advocates to say, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. And luckily they are not necessarily reinventing the wheel, so to speak. That's really more of a, um, if Simpson was high level, Um, You know, they're not necessarily mentioning Simpson, but their process is really, well, well, how do we get to something like Simpson's plan from like a nuts and bolts level? So how much is it going to cost? What do we need to replace? Did he leave anything out? So I think they're using his initiative as a roadmap to fill in some of the details. Um, So is there, is it legislation that, I mean, do you, do you anticipate, you know, you talked about being able to vote, either someone votes on this in Congress or, or maybe as a nation, we'll be able to think about this, maybe parse that out a little more. Well, that's the end goal. It has to be the the only way a dam can be uh, decommissioned. It'll have to be in these dams, at least or federal dams will have to be an act of Congress to tell the army Corps and BPA, the, the, the operating agencies, what to do. Uh, and so, you know, if that's point B, we're at the first few steps leaving point A. And this sort of process is coming up with what I would think is is uh, what I believe will be language that just needs to be sort of turned into a legislation. Like if they say, okay, well, it's going to cost $1.3 million billion with a B dollars to breach all the four dams, uh, according to the army Corps, well, then we need to plug that in an appropriation style bill, you know, so it will inform legislation. I'd say, yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely the hope is that it will inform and what should happen, that it will inform legislation. I think, uh, I'd like to be, I mean, I'm not an optimist by nature, but I'd, I'd like to be optimistic about, uh, Marine Inslee's motives, um, in undertaking the study without diving too much into them. I think Brian did a pretty good job of assessing th- at the very least they're saying, you know, Simpson, you came up with some big top level numbers and those seem maybe higher, maybe low. We're going to double check that work and we're going to try to put a more precise dollar amount on more precise things that have to be replaced. So Simpson says like, Hey, we know that we're going to have to replace a bunch of rail and their transportation infrastructure. Ansley and Murray's process is getting more into, okay, what precisely do we have to put in place in order to replace the transportation that the barges and the river system provide? Um, so diving a little bit more into it. Uh, and I think in terms of what it turns into, uh, I think a lot of what we do as citizens and as advocates on the issue in the coming months is going to determine that answer. So if Inslee and Murray, everybody, all politicians are moved by politics, moved by their constituents or others. If we as advocates, as citizens tell them that this is what you are going to do, 
So we, you did this study. Now we want you to, to draft legislation in order to like, and, and get appropriations to do the thing. We know what it costs. Now go do it. If we tell them to do that. Well, then that's what they'll do. I think uh, the process comes to an end what, in, end of July. Um, here in a couple weeks, they're supposed to have their preliminary study by the or done or analysis done by the end of May. And then we're going to open that back up for comments. So that's a really great opportunity for people to weigh in and give feedback um, and hopefully, you know, demand they be less wishy-washy where they're going to be wishy-washy. Um, and then before end of July, which also corresponds with a, a stay on litigation um, for some interested parties, all the pressure we can put on them to deliver actual solutions and not just more sort of vapid studies would be really helpful. Yeah, you said a couple things, Aaron, that I think are important here. One is, right, politicians, elected leaders, decision makers, so on, they do what their constituents, you know, kind of compel them to do, uh, you know, and, and that's why this work that we're all engaged in, you guys specifically on this issue is so critical, right? Like there's everybody can't digest this, can't just look at it and go, yeah, I got this figured out. This is a big, hairy hairy problem, right? You mean, you guys started in the beginning with talking about, you know, the biology parts, the, the what exactly salmon do and how they return. And then we got to the, some of the, you know, hydroelectricity parts. I mean, there's a lot of this that most people aren't going to just go, yeah, I get it. It's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the economic parts and players and opinions. And I think the key part is getting to know what you can know, you know, listen to podcasts like this, go find information, you know, figure out what's best, particularly for salmon, but be fair, right? That's what we want. We want to see a fair outcome for the farmers, for, mm -hmm. for the power generators, and then give that input to these leaders because they, they need that, right? They need right. to hear from, from folks like us, this, this process that you mentioned or that we talked about with governor Inslee and, and Senator Murray, you know, you, you got the dates, right? There's a, there's a site if folks want to go look at it, and we'll put it in the show notes. It's LSRD options, so Lower Snake River Dam Options.org, LSRD.org. Uh, you know, you can go there, kind of see what they're considering, throw in your comments. I'm sure Senator, uh, sorry, Representative Simpson would, would take some more comments and, and some ideas, especially since we don't have legislation yet. But it seems to me, am I, am I correct? I mean, we want legislation, or, or you know, mm -hmm. that seems like the next thing we want. We want the yeah. administration yeah. to direct the agencies to prepare for removal, and we want Congress or some somebody in Congress to draft legislation and appropriations to remove them. Mm -hmm. Well, good. At least we yeah. have a path. I mean, <laughs> that, yeah. that's that's the good news. There's, you know, what's funny. You know, there's you you tell some people it's like, hey, you know, contact your you know people. Congressmen will still listen if you. If you just get a hold of them, I think people are like, yeah, right. But look at where we are now. I mean, we're we're talking about this. This this is um this has made it across the country. This news, Simpson is acting on it. Senator Murray's acting on it. Governor Inslee, there's interest in blooming out folks uh, in in Oregon uh, at the congressional level. I mean, it's it's you're seeing it work in real time, and you're also going to see in real time, you know the hiccups of a lot of that process, the ugly politics of the opposition that want to keep the gravy train going. Um, but you're also, it's just, it's the sausage making prop uh, process, but um, 
it's it's happening in real time if that gives anybody any hope i'm glad you said that brian because it's a it's an old problem yeah just by the fact that we're actually taking starting to talk about taking care of it that means something's happening right that's That's the good news and what else should we cover Uh, i know we've been here oh go ahead aaron well, I think that's actually a good segue into what I was going to say, which is, uh, you know, we should dream big. Like the, the, it's cool that we're talking about it, but uh, and light man, it's an exhausting world that we live in, right? <laughs> like every day just feels like a slog. It's so hard. I don't know if it I, used to be I probably don't know not. What you're it probably about. used to. It probably used to be easy, I bet. But no, it's 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 exhausting. But I think like this is one of those issues where we can get back to some American political roots and think big. Like we should be doing big things. This is a big thing. This could be the biggest restoration project in human history. We can forestall the extinction of a keystone species all while uh, pulling out of, pulling out of its spiral, a bloated federal bureaucracy with a monopoly over the movement of electrons. We could finally demand accountability from the federal government and from the agencies implementing what they're doing. We tell them how many fish they're going to give us and how we're going to get our power versus them telling us how much we're going to pay for power and how few fish we're going to get back. Like this is a very American issue <laughs> and at a time where we really need a win. <laughs> like we, we need to do something like this. We need to do more things like this. We used to do yeah. big things and hard things, but we stopped for a while. We can still do hard things. This is hard. This is really big. It's confusing for a lot of people, but I think when you break it down into component parts and like, luckily we do have guys like Brian and who, who do a good job of that. And guys like you who bring uh, who give us or who give us the venue. But I mean, as Brian laid out, we know what is the primary source of mortality for these fish. We know that if we remove the, and the agencies do too, the federal government themselves, if we remove the dams, all, all science directs that we will get these fish back. And we can account for the people who would be impacted by that. We can do all of the things necessary. We can replace all the other services, but in order to forestall the extinction of fish and all the benefits they provide to communities, spiritually, culturally, economically, uh, we just need to do that and we can, and we should, because life is too exhausting and not do big things. <laughs> I thought a couple of times you were going to drop the mic there, Aaron, but uh, there was, there was a couple of good I'd things. I have to shut my other computer other and that backfire on me. <laughs> <laughs> he does this from uh, time to time. He blacks out. He doesn't even remember that he did it. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think you pointed to one other thing too, right? And this is, this is, it's kind of just the start in a way too, right? Like we get these dams down, but that doesn't mean the work's done. There's mm-hmm. a, there's still more to do to recover salmon, you know, fully. Maybe we won't ever recover them to, to their, you know, pre whatever era, but there, there's a lot to do. This is an ongoing process. I guess it gives conservationists and advocates something to do and a job. So there's that, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> keep, keep fighting the good fight and, and keep us, you know, abreast of what's going on. And, and, you know, I think, man, I, it's like, we talked to, we talked to some people from Alaska a few different times, you know, every sportsman, sportswoman in America, they want to go to Alaska and hunt or fish. Right. I think the salmon, the Northwest salmon falls in that iconic category. It's like everybody once in their life wants to hook on to a big Chinook or, 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 you know, one of the other salmon, it's kind of like that American dream. It's possible because of our big rivers, our wild lands, those, those awesome lands up in Idaho. And I just, I can't imagine delivering my kid a world 
where that's not possible and it, we just can't let it happen. And I commend you guys for, for doing the work and keeping this fire hot and, and, and doing just the long work, man. This, like you said, it's a big slog. It, it takes forever to get this thing done, but hopefully before we're all gone, we'll be uh, sitting around a campfire, raising a glass and, and, and toasting the, the fact that this all happened and we were all part of it. I'll bring the whiskey. Amen. <laughs> Sounds I'm good. In. Anything else you want to leave us with? You know, I, I think you summed it up well. I think that um, as long as people zoom out and understand that this is a uh, an issue that our goal is fish, but they're the, the, the river system is not just failing our fish. And this is what should motivate people is this is a way, as Aaron had said, to do something big that will reinvigorate the inland Northwest, our economy and replace some old failing expensive infrastructure with new green energy producing infrastructure and, and transportation and, and the, the, the possibility of doing that, um, is is really gives me a lot of hope and it's it's motivating and i hope that other people are motivated by the opportunity awesome aaron anything from you no i mean i think uh i think my last little few state and brian's uh more succinct summary really get there but i do you know i guess i think we do it sounds it sounds uh, overly dramatic, but I do think we need this, <laughs> I th- and not just this, but like what this represents. We need to do something that both makes sense, that is politically sound, that is the right decision politically, that is economically beneficial, that is ecologically imperative, and that reflects the ethos of America. I mean, you talk about our big rivers, our big streams. Like we didn't come here because it sucked. <laughs> I mean, we came here to get away, away from monarchy, right? And a lot of other reasons. We were probably peasants. But we, but the reason we stayed and the reason other people came was the grandeur, the majesty of America. And we lose sight of those things and get so myopic sometimes. And as Brian said, if we can just zoom out and see we can take care of each other, we can take care of our country, and we can do – we can – get rid of these petty political differences and focus on something that we should all be able to align around. Um, this is one of those things. And it's a thing we can do. It's a thing we should do. It's in our power. Uh, we just need to exercise our, our democratic, uh, our democratic agency to make things happen. Tell them what we want and see it happen. Awesome. How about you, big bill? You want to leave us with anything wise, man, Aaron, uh, you know, I'm relatively new to this this type of work. I mean, the last six years before that, it's private business and, and media. And now nationalizing issues like the Everglades and Mississippi River Delta, that's my job. And, and I listen to this story, and it deserves the same kind of attention with the nation and, and with sportsmen around the country because it is an iconic place, and these are iconic fish. I grew up reading about them, still read about them, and I've gone out there and fished, and, and like you, Aaron, I didn't do much uh, with them when I went, but uh, uh, I hope to do it again, and so that place needs to be there. And one thing I can promise people, even if they don't think their representatives listen, if you call your senator or your your representative's office, that call is logged, and what you wanted to say is logged. They hear about it, and it has to start somewhere, so make a phone call, people. Awesome words, Bill. 
We'll leave it at that, guys. We'll put some uh, more links in the show notes to some of the work these two gents are doing, and we appreciate you coming on and keep on keeping on. Yeah, thanks, Bill and Aaron. Appreciate it. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. <laughs>